You are listening to a Pleasure Podcast. For more from our Sex Podcast Collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com. Sluts and Scholars. Thanks for tuning in. Sluts and Scholars is a sex-positive, shame-free educational podcast where we try to help you talk smart and fuck smarter. While we love to give advice and resources, please note that this podcast or any emails from us are not intended to be therapy or a replacement for therapy. Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars, where we talk smart and fuck smarter. I'm Nicoletta, and I'm a marriage and family therapist and sexologist. And I'm Simone, Nicoletta's friend who likes to talk about fucking, and also I'm a law student. And this week, we're joined by Cameron Glover. She is a black femme writer, sex educator, and podcaster specializing in helping other sexuality professionals monetize their expertise online. Tell us the code. <laughs> She's written for a variety of publications, including Playboy, Medium, and Allure. She's the host of Sex Ed in Color podcast, which is a show that centers the stories and experiences of sexuality professionals of color. You may have been introduced to her through the whole Wildflower Sex call out this summer. So if you want to learn more about that, check out the link to her article in the show notes because there's already a lot of info about that out there. Yeah. Yeah, I think that covers it. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) Hi, welcome. So excited to be here and just like be in conversation with y'all. Oh, yay. Well, I heard an awesome interview of yours um, on our friend's show, on Tristan Terramino's show. Yeah. Who's a big fan of yours, by the way. Oh my God, I Um, love Tristan. (laughs) And obviously you can't speak for everyone, but I'd be curious in your experience, what is it like to be interviewed by white women about racial politics and sex ed? Yeah. um, So I feel like I think about this question a lot because the sex ed space is very much white focused. It's very whitewashed and it's still, it's shifting slowly, but most of the folks in the field are still white. So something that I just have to come to terms with is the fact that like I have to interact with white people um, in some proximity, (laughs) which like, you know, all right. Um, (laughs) I mean, it's not a bad thing. Like, I just, I feel like I'm very clear about who my audience is and who I create content and who I speak to, which is very largely people that have similar experiences to me. So I focus primarily on centering black identity within sex ed. Um, And I extend that, I would say, to non-black people of color. But white people are still, like, still make up a percentage of my audience. So, like, it's not that I feel like I have to cater to white people, but I am still, like, very conscious and very firm about, like, the personal boundaries I have to have as a person um, and as a sexuality professional. And so, yeah. What kind of boundaries are you talking about? Yeah, so I think that there's absolutely nothing wrong with me saying, like, you know, this is what I will talk about and this is what I will not talk about Um, and just being, like, very firm about it. I think that this is also a very gendered thing, too, where, like, especially women and, like, femme presenting and socialized folks feel like they have to apologize or like over explain all the time. Like I have to constantly remind myself I don't need to do that. But when I think about boundaries, I think that it's so necessary for me to just state them and then have that period. Like I'm done. Like the boundary is the boundary. I don't need to explain why the boundary is. I just need to express that. And like either you follow along with that or you don't. 
And you feel like it's a different boundary with white folks in the space. Yeah, definitely. Because when, especially when we're talking about something as like personal and like messy as sex, there's so many layers and nuance that need to go into that. So I, how do I explain this? Like, I have like multiple boundaries just as like a person that has sex and then also as like a professional that's in the field of sexuality, right? So even on yes. those two layers, like I'm already practicing boundaries because there are things that I talk about with my partner that I don't necessarily talk about if I'm like teaching a workshop or something mm -hmm. or I'm working with clients. Um, and right. I think that it's really healthy to have that and like something that I love helping other folks in the field work on too, just like figuring out what those boundaries are and what helps us to feel good, but also be able to show up for the folks that we're working with. Um, so That's yeah. something that we, that we have to think about a lot on our show as well. Like what do we want to say? What do we want to tell? And how comfortable do we feel with an audience hearing it? And I wonder, do you feel like you have to be even more conservative with what you share as a black femme person? <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I feel like, especially with, um, this is probably the extent that I will talk about the wildflower thing. I think that if anything, that's really shown me that like, you know, the people that fucks with me are going to just fucks with me. Like you either fucks with me or you don't. Right. And I feel like folks have the folks that like maybe have written me off for like whatever like they've already decided that they will not work with me because of like their expectations of what they think I should be right so like even just before I even say anything just being a black queer um, person in this field and like doing this work that's already ruffling feathers I don't have to do anything special I just mm. exist and I piss people off so mm. I don't feel like I need to coddle anything because I am me and this is like, I'm very authentic and um, just like intentional about the way that I show up in the world. Like we were talking before about an event that I was at and I met two people there and I was just like, I, I don't want to say I was low key about it, but I was just like, you know, I'm Cameron and like, this is what I do and stuff. And they asked for like my Instagram and I shared it and they're like, Oh, you're that Cameron. Like you're kind of a big deal. And I'm like, I'm really not like <laughs> I'm a person. <laughs> so I don't feel this need to like show up as like, I don't know, a facade of who I am. I show up as myself in all the spaces that I show up in. I just may show up in different ways depending on who's in that space, but it's all still me. It's all still authentically Cameron, if that makes sense. Which makes it all the more rewarding for someone to see you and like verbally recognize your work mm -hmm. because it's like, this is me in the space authentically. And like that is resonating with so many people. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm so happy that it resonates because I just feel like I, at the core of what I do, I love that I get to amplify and share my platform to say, hey, like these people over here have been doing the work and I learned so much from them, like also learn from them. And that's part of like why I'm so intentional about when I do sex ed in color or even when I'm writing articles, like I love sharing resources and putting that in there because I want people to also know that they are the experts in their own experiences and they shouldn't look to just one person, even if it's me, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Like, I know what I'm talking about, but, like, also you should look at the information yourself and come to your own conclusion. As an educator, 
Um, my role is not to tell anybody what they should or should not do. My role is to give you all of the information so you can make the best decision for yourself. And like the most fulfilling part of the work that I do is like hearing from folks, feeling that empowerment, feeling like they no longer need this permission from this like unknown entity that like they need to earn pleasure or earn like the things that they want. Like, fuck it, it's yours. Like (laughs) if you want to know how to do something, the information is out there. If you want to like have more orgasms or have less well why would you want to have less orgasms but <laughs> just happening too much can't focus. yeah <laughs> but like however you want your sex life to look like that is yours to claim you don't need to explain or justify or any of that like it is yours something something that i struggle with whenever we have like folks of color on the podcast is feeling like we have to talk about like racial politics and we have to talk about like racism within the sex ed community, within the like sex therapy community. And I find it difficult to make sure that I guess that it doesn't feel like tokenization, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Like wanting to say like, yeah, it obviously sex ed is not colorblind. We can't just interview and like pretend that this is not a part of like what we're talking about. And, um, I don't want it to just be like, look, we have a black person on the podcast. Mm -hmm. Well, I would also challenge that by saying, like, how are you bringing in these conversations when your guests are not present, when your guests of color are not Mm -hmm. here? And Mm -hmm. that's part of doing this work. So I feel very strongly that we can't separate racial justice from sexual liberation because the two are Mm -hmm. interconnected. Like there is no sexual liberation if there is no racial justice and there is no dismantling of anti-blackness. Which, when we Mm -hmm. think about all these deep-rooted things like desirability politics and, like, just all these really big concepts that play a role in all of our lives, like, they're still present. And it's up to all of us to do the work, whether there are people watching or not, to, like, dismantle these systems. Mm -hmm. So, like, it's not about doing it just when... (laughs) There's an audience. Yeah, like, don't, like... You know, don't talk about this stuff just when I'm on the podcast because that yeah. also puts like an undue amount of like um, like labor for me mm-hmm. just to be yes. present for these like conversations and also like maybe I don't want to fucking talk about it right now. <laughs> like, right. You know, maybe I just want to talk about uh, I don't know something else. Like I um I was at a event um, that was about experiences as black tattooers and I am like a tattooed person and it was really interesting because a lot of the things that were being brought up during the panel I felt like are very similar to experiences I felt in the sex ed space and it was just interesting mm-hmm. because um, the folks on the panel were talking about um, the like microaggressions that they felt in the field too so like working in a shop and like Um, when a black client walks in the door, the shop owners will like change the music. And that's such a small like (laughs) microaggression, but that still plays a role in like how important it is that we're actively working on dismantling anti-blackness because it's like, you know, I like, maybe I want to listen to some like Billy Joel or something. Like, (laughs) you know, why are you just like, (laughs) you definitely want to listen to Billy Joel. Why are you just, like, assuming that, like, I, like, oh, I walked in, so you have to put on some rap music or something like that. And 
when we're thinking about racism too, it's I think really important for white folks to understand that racism is not just the KKK and Confederate flags. Like it is, do you clutch your purse when you are walking down the street and you see a black person walking towards you? Like it is the fact that you have no black friends. It is like the fact that you have not, I don't know, you don't have any black folks to recommend as sexuality professionals, not just because they're black, but just because they are experts in their own niches and fields of expertise. Like that is also racism and that's also important to dismantle. Thank you. That was so well said. Thank you. That was very helpful. Because I do think, I mean, I think, actually no, you mentioned desirability politics. Mm -hmm. And I would love you to explain that for our listeners. Because I think that's a really interesting topic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So desirability politics are like, really nuanced and complicated like everything else but what they're i know <laughs> right <that> simple <laughs> i wish um so desirability politics can be simplified to like when we think about who we perceive as attractive do we a do we genuinely feel this way as individuals or are we conditioned to just assume that people with these traits are desirable right so that conscious versus unconscious desirability and then also are all the traits that we find attractive, do they correlate to groups of power and privilege? Mm. So talking about race specifically, that looks like finding folks that are lighter skinned or ideally white to be the most desirable, like the most attractive. And anyone that is dark skinned is automatically ugly and deemed unattractive, right? Mm -hmm. But this also plays a role in like body politics when we think about people of size, when we think about fat identified folks, um, and when we think about skinny folks and straight sized folks, right? This also plays a role in like ableism, like just so many like forms of oppression. Um, But I think that especially when we're talking about racism, like desirability politics come out and also by extension, they come out a lot in just sex education, I think. So is part of the purpose of sex education and maybe just like the dismantling of that, like how do we like reprogram these ideas, these hyper ingrained ideas? Obviously it's linked to like dismantling anti-blackness and all, and like acknowledging that like this idea, like white supremacy is a thing and Mm -hmm. all of that. Um, But do you think there's any other avenues that exist or is it still all bound up in ideas of racial justice and sexual liberation? Um, I mean, it's all, I think the only path that we can collectively take is working past sexual liberation. But what that looks like is a dismantling of these things on a micro and a macro scale. So individually, what we all have the power to do is investigate um, these things and ask ourselves the question of like, do I really want this? Or is this just something that I've been told that I want? But how do we like, communicate that to other people? Like, yeah. I get that. Like, we have these conversations, right? Mm-hmm. The people who are who like are like, oh, this is a thing I need to think about and talk about. Like, we need to obviously work harder to continuously question ourselves. But how do we get the people who, like, this conversation and this concept of desirability politics would, like, never occur to? Like, I went on a date yesterday, and Mm -hmm. we were talking about, like, body hair. And and this is is a cishet dude. Um, I'm so sorry. He had really long (laughs) hair. There was, like, an element of femme to him. Mm -hmm. But, like, I don't know. I 
Anyway, it was a cishet dude. I was on a date yesterday, and we were talking about, like, level. Sometimes I just, like, feel like I need to do the work, you know? And we were talking about, like, what makes someone attractive. And, like, I had talked about how this one woman had broken up with me because I didn't shave my legs. And we were just, like, having conversations about body hair. And he was, like, yeah, like, he was, like, I would, because I, I, anyway. And he was, like, so most guys just, like, don't think that, traits in a woman that are like a man are attractive like anything that's on a woman's body that reminds me of a man so obviously so much just like homophobia there mm-hmm. but just like how do you have that conversation I was like yeah but yeah. come on don't you think like women's bodies were hairy for much longer than they've been <laughs> shaved like this is a new way of attractive and he was kind of like Mm-hmm. But, like, it's still, like, how do we pierce that? How yeah. do we, like, make, like, the locker room talk this shit? Oh, God. Well, first. I know it's, like, a far-off dream. There's I guess there's getting rid of so locker much. rooms. <laughs> well, the first thing is, like, is this person or people willing to have this conversation? Because I also think, too, like, you can lead a horse to water. You can't make it drink. So, like, if the person is not open. Really? You can just, like, push their face I in wish, and, like, I hold wish. it in and then they inhale water. <laughs> They're drowning and swallowing water. That counts as drinking. I wish, right? But, like, when we think about it, too, in our, like, culture and a society, like, that person that you went on a date with has the same access to resources. Like, Google is free. <laughs> You know what I mean? So, like, if it was a matter of access and resource, like, this is a person that has the means and the ability to already have that knowledge if they want it. Um, But for some people, it kind of takes, it takes something more than that. I don't know. And it's on, like, such a case-by-case basis that, like, sometimes people want it spoon-fed to them. Sometimes people are just not receptive to having that conversation and they don't care. They're just like, well, I like what I like and whatever. Um, and I think it's about finding that middle ground of like recognizing the labor that you yourself are willing to put in for that. So something that I think about a lot with my personal relationships is just like every relationship requires emotional labor to some degree, right? Like I have, I <laughs> exhibit a lot of emotional um, labor for my mother and my partner and like I love them and I wouldn't change that but I also again have to be firm about those boundaries of like all right these are things that I'm not going to talk about because this just is too much on my end um, and I want it to be reciprocal so I think that's also something to think about with these conversations like they need to happen um, but also just being aware that like you yourself may not need to do all of the labor of like breaking down this concept. Maybe that labor looks like having this conversation and just being like, hey, and if you want to know more about this, let me lend you this book or send you this website or this YouTube mm. video that talks about this thing as well. And when you're ready to talk about it more, I'll be happy to listen. It can look like that. That's really helpful. I mean, sort of a combination of, of that and what we were talking about before for me resonates in this example of this ongoing thing that, that I've seen in both like award shows and also um, conferences when sometimes there's no person of color nominated for an award where we know there's a lot of folks of color doing good work in that space Mm -hmm. Um, or there aren't speakers at a conference. (laughs) Sorry, I was thinking about a specific instance where this just happened. I'm just like, uh, again? We probably are. And I'm like, oh, really? It's not the only instance. It's not the only instance, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, And so that makes me think of this where I know... I know some of the white folks responded with like, hey, I'm going to step back and let's, you know, I don't want to be nominated. Let's instead like promote like 
black voices. Um, and then other people were like, fuck no, I worked really hard for this and like, I'm not going to give up my spot. Um, and I would love to have a conversation about that and how this fits into all the other stuff you're talking about. Cause I, I can definitely understand all the sides as my, my therapist brain is always like, mm -hmm. I get all the sides. No. And we're definitely thinking about the same thing. Cause I, you know, I did see some folks that were like, yeah, I'm going to step down because like, this is a larger issue. And like, I think at, at its core, what I felt like some folks were not understanding, this isn't an individual thing. This isn't about you individually and like how hard you work. Cause like even that idea of like the American like dream, if you just work hard enough, you'll like get all these things, right? Like black folks, like systematically we are still owed 40 acres and a mule. And like, where is that? So if we're thinking about like, just this idea of like, if I just work hard enough, then I'm going to obtain these things and like, I'm gonna get the recognition that I deserve, that is rightfully mine, right? Like mm -hmm. how many people is that still owed to? Like, I don't think we can, yes, like, it's a yes and conversation because like on an individual basis, like I do think that like, people that do good work should be celebrated for doing that good work but we don't live in a just society. Like we live in a fucked up, like oppressive capitalist, white supremacist society. So we can't separate the fact that like, yes, it's great that like these people are getting nominated, but like think about how many other folks have been in the field for just as long, longer that have pioneered so much of the work that like, I don't know, people are co-opting without credit and like how they're still not getting their flowers too. So we have to think about this larger conversation. And again, like this is system wide. This is not like, it just happened to Susie over here and like, whatever, like this is happening on a constant, constant basis. Like even with like that particular instance, that wasn't the first time that that's happened. <laughs> like I'm thinking about um, how sex and color got started too. It got started because there was an article. I can't even remember who wrote it, but there was like, an article that was written about like 25 like oh sex God. educators to follow on Twitter and not a single like person of color was on this list. And it's just like in 2018 when this was written, I'm like, you can't find a single one, you know? And it just comes back to like, they did a very sheepish update of the list. Afterwards. But no, I mean, not that yeah. that's legitimate, but it's like, but it's just nonsense because it's, like not it's that just they like, there. they just didn't look. It's just thing. like, we're having the same conversations over and over and over again. And like, if we've wanted things to change, the answer has already been out there. Like, <laughs> so I think it is systematic yeah. and it is ingrained though. Cause I can't say I'm above it either. Like, my dream would be to one day be on some of those lists and some of those nominations. And I'm imagining like getting that thing and then seeing there's no people of color on it and being like, would I remove myself? And part of my immediate thing is like, no, but I've worked really hard. Mm -hmm. And like, I think I have, you know, it's, it's in me too. Yeah. And it's part of this like constant process too, because no matter, there is no like certain level of just, I hate the word woke, but like certain level of just like enlightenment that people get, like you don't get a cookie. Like once you reach the mountaintop, like there is no, mm -hmm. there is no end point. It is a constant lifelong journey. Just like sex is like yeah. a lifelong journey that we each go on individually and like changes and shifts right. depending on like where we're at. Mm -hmm. So does awareness and like enlightenment of just like social justice issues. So like we have to keep, 
doing the work and just keep being humble and being like, you know what? Like, I'm going to fuck up. Like, I'm going to mess up. I'm going to, like, commit some harm to someone at some point. And it's my job to just like be gracious and to like commit to doing better and like mm-hmm. actually knowing how to give an apology as well. I'm throwing some shade, but like, <laughs> that's also important. No, shade is fair to throw. That reminds me a yeah. lot of what uh, Wendy said when we had her back with Nina. I don't know if you know Nina and, and Wendy, but we had an episode with them and they talked about in finding each other, like on this journey, like, a lot of people got hurt mm-hmm. and they could have been more gracious about it. Yeah. And so I think that this really is a fair, like a, that makes total sense. But I have a totally separate question is why don't you like the word woke? Um, it's just been like co-opted and taken away. I believe very strongly that there should be community specific words for marginalized folks. Um, and what we're mm-hmm. talking about, specifically the word woke has roots in AV and mm-hmm. African-American um, vernacular English. And we see this trend, especially with like internet culture of like things being taken and appropriated and misconstrued from black community specifically, and then co-opted into popular language, which Mm -hmm. is just like code for like white culture at large to like Mm -hmm. take that and remove the meaning, remove the like reason for its creation and the power that that word had as being rooted in that community. And yeah, I just don't mess with it. I feel yeah. the it's same like words way. when they're in Ave, like when someone's speaking Ave, it's like not good and anti-black, right? Yeah. And then once it's emerged and like whitewashed, then like this word is now okay and like yeah. used for I, everyone. It's not like, yeah. oh, we can all use words. It's like, no, you feel like you can use that word because it doesn't feel black to you anymore. Yeah, and then we even see this with like other words too that are, commun- I'm not going to say them, but like there are community-specific words that I think it's not up to anyone outside of that community to decide whether or not they should be used, um, particularly words that are that have really harmful, violent histories. It is only up to each individual person in that community to decide whether or not they want to use it or not. And that's their prerogative and that's their right. Um, and also with like intersectionality, which like that could be its own episode in and of itself. But yeah, words mean things. <laughs> Sorry for the interruption, but do you know that moment when you realize you forgot to put deodorant on? Well, let's all take a pause to do the superstar movie move and put our hands under our armpits and then smell them like this. My pits currently smell like native deodorant cucumber mint. I kid you not. My mom convinced me to use native deodorant and now here they are sponsoring this episode and giving discounts. Native is a safe, simple, and effective deodorant made without aluminum, parabens, and talc, aka the stuff that may be linked to some serious health issues. Also, it works and it feels super smooth. I have tried many healthy deodorants, but Native lasts during my long days at the office. They smell amazing and also come in unscented and baking soda-free options. Check out Native to see if it fits for you. They even offer discounts for folks who get monthly deliveries to your door. For 20% off your first purchase, go to nativedeodorant.com and use our promo code S&S in all caps. That's S-A-N-D-S in all caps. For some reason, though, if it's not for you, they even offer free returns and exchanges. So go to nativedeodorant.com and enter our promo code S&S. We hope you enjoy. Now back to the episode. In addition to that, it's also sounding like you're saying that this is an ongoing, evolving thing that all of us need to do and challenge ourselves on. And so the idea of like woke or not is like, 
you've accomplished it or you haven't, mm-hmm. as opposed to this is like an ongoing, evolving dialogue um, yeah. that's continuing. Yeah, like dialogue, commitment to action. I think it's also important when we're talking about these things, too. It's not just about the word or the, um, like, knowing the language and knowing, like, the terminology, right? It's also about putting it into action. So, like, what are the actions we're committing to doing this? So, like, take, for example, like, when you apologize, like, let's say I step on Simone's foot, right? I can't say, oh, I didn't mean to step on your foot because I still stepped on your foot. Like, you know what? I'm sorry I stepped on your foot. There's still an impact. Yeah, I'm going to be more mindful of where I'm stepping and not step on your foot in the future. Yeah, is there anything else that I can do to like? (laughs) like, Yeah, boo boo. Yeah, and if that's part of the like (laughs) restorative justice component of the conversation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think we're analogize these issues to things that people can readily understand. Like we're laughing as we're saying this, but that's a really real example, and I would. Definitely tell somebody, like, you know, you. St- I would definitely make my brother, like, rub my foot yeah. if he stepped on it. Yeah. yeah. As far as the restorative justice model. <laughs> and I'm totally fine with that. Um, yeah. <laughs> I love this. Yeah. But th- that's kind of like the conversation, you know, about, like, do you want some tea consent cartoon mm-hmm. that was really popular? Like, it is really helpful to analogize to, like, really basic, like, tangible issues, like concepts of restorative justice and, like, mm-hmm. consent. That's really interesting. Yeah. Thing. My friend, um, Yana Helen Hicks, she's a sex educator and therapist outside of Massachusetts, and she does um, consent and cookies. So she does a whole workshop um, that she's like trademarked and like worked out and teaches folks, um, mainly college students, about consent using cookies. So like folks will like pair up and like together in the form of like making a cookie together, you learn about consent and how to practice that. And it's really cool to see the ways that like especially we're seeing consent adapted to non-sex ed spaces as well like I'm really excited in New York um folks over at Saved Tattoo in Brooklyn um Tamara she's one of the artists there and she just co um created a whole like pamphlet about consent in tattooing shops with a sex educator that I know Kai um, and did like a workshop on it and everything. And it's just like super cool. And I'll send you guys like the resources for that to put in the show notes yeah, too. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, please. I mean, with, with all of this going on, like how have you found your own power and your voice in a white sex ed space? And like, who's been an inspiration for you? Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> uh, I love this question. And I'm also like, how did I find it? Um, I think that at its core, I didn't have a choice. Like it was either I find my own way or I conform to what other people say is my way, which I know is not my way. Um, Yeah, I just, I feel like I've always led by curiosity. Like I've always just like been this person that like I want to know stuff. And if I have the capacity to like do it myself, I want to help create the thing that I want to see. So even before I got into the sex ed field, I was looking at different things and like seeing models of folks in the field. And I'm like, the work they're doing is really great, but I'm naturally seeing these gaps of like people that are not being served, perspectives that just aren't being shared. And I'm like, well, I have this. And if this is coming up for me, that probably means it's coming up for somebody else. So, excuse me, this is something that I can take on and I can really adapt to something that can be really helpful for folks because I, even before I had the language for it, I felt like 
sex was something that I felt like I needed this permission for. And I felt for a long time scared of my own pleasure, I would say. Mm. So in doing this work, I felt a lot of like self-liberation as well, like being able to facilitate this healing for other people has also led to me feeling like I'm rediscovering myself and like I am embodying these things and I like I am now held to the standard where I have to like practice what I preach right I have to put all these things into action as well and that can be really intimidating but also it's so like I'm grateful every day I get to do this work like Mm. for real you just mentioned like taking on your pleasure and and one of the most one of the I mean I think you've said a lot of really fucking rad (laughs) things but one of the things that you say is like there's a declaration that pleasure is a right not a privilege Mm -hmm. and like what do you like let's talk about that because I really do agree with that but for some reason we put like pleasure as something you know on the back burner that I like hope to attain that's not a priority um and also that like we're sometimes okay saying I might never not ever have that or that person might not ever have it like there's no you don't have a right to that mm-hmm. oh yeah I love talking about this because <laughs> I think that there's there's two things that come up for me so the first just being like again historically pleasure is always seen at the back burner so like whenever folks talk about like the statistics of sex ed in the country taught in like classrooms right um, and like what would number are we down to like nine states I think at this point mandate medically accurate sex ed which is abysmal but the fact too that like we're quantifying it as medically accurate as like including all these technical things but we take pleasure completely out of it because when sex ed is taught in schools and in a lot of times in these public spaces, it's relegated to this thing that people only do for reproduction. But sex is supposed to be fun. Like, well, <laughs> It's really funny that you mentioned that because Tennessee's law uh, called like the Family Life Planning Act or something like mm-hmm. that, uh, in their sex ed curriculum, it expressly prohibits talking about anything called gateway sexual behavior. What is that? And if a teacher a gateway? does that promotes gateway sexual behavior, then like a parent has literally a right to file a lawsuit and they get a $500 fine. No. What is gateway sexual behavior though? Like anything anything leading to penetration? Procreative intercourse. But see, if I don't have the gateway stuff, I'm going to want to do the quote unquote procreative intercourse. (laughs) Like give me, give me some hand sex and I'll abstain from penetration forever. You want people to not get pregnant, then tell them how to not do the thing that will get you pregnant. And also (laughs) the fact that like you're like (laughs) gateway sexual. We're, we're talking about this concept to young people and like, what the fuck is a gateway sexual? Like, I don't even know what that is. So like dry humping, just thinking about like, if I'd never dry humped, yeah, actually like, that's not true. If you're like a 15 I guess or I'm- like, I don't know, like 13 to like 18 year old person. Right. And you're just like, what, what even is that? If you don't even know like what tripping is or I don't like know what, what tripping is. what's tripping <laughs> or even like, can I get pregnant from like sitting on a toilet seat? Yeah, like how how are you supposed to know that? Which like we can totally talk about tripping. What is tripping? <laughs> I see how you brought that full circle. Yeah, tripping yeah. before we started. And I feel not that not to be like to my own heart. It's rare that there's a sexual term that I've literally never heard in my yeah. life. So this term always makes me think of that. Yeah, Cameron, like, take it away. Tune of um. <laughs> Betty and Veronica, and they're both like looking at each other, and there's like stars in front of their eyes, and they're like, Whoa, that was really fun. And I'm just like, Yeah. <laughs> um, so, tripping is just like when two like vulva owners just like rub their vulvas together. Oh. 
Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm a tripper. I'm a tripper. Yeah. <laughs> but it seems like you don't have to have a vulva because it seems like Nicoletta did that with her penis-having partner today. <laughs> <laughs> called out. Called um, well, I in. Think it's, it's sort of called in. I feel like it's definitely the expansion of like how people are like, oh, lesbian scissor, you know, and that, that's like the only way they have sex. But it is sort of like that is one way that people with vulvas can have sex. Um, but also I think in the work that I'm doing um, in challenging clients and talking to our listeners about different kinds of sex, I was like, I would love to try just like rubbing, tribbing behavior with like my penis having partner. Mm. And so I definitely don't want to like take the the word of tribbing like out of, like you were saying, and maybe out of a um, a culture that has like claimed that word. And mm. um, I found it cool to like do non-penetrative rubbing mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. more than penetration yeah. and I like told my partner I was like I've been watching a lot of tribbing videos like I'd like to do this with you <laughs> and they were like super down so hot Ugh. and people like yeah I, I think it's better totally than most of the penetration very stuff. big non-penetration person like if I want like I have to really want penetrate like I love doing non-penetrative stuff and sometimes I'll get to the point where I'm like stick something in <laughs> me anything just put it in there but like that doesn't always happen yeah yeah. Um, I did have another point about pleasure. I got Oh, yes. Sorry, we got distracted by Very distracted. I got distracted. No, it's my fault. I take responsibility. I, I have to a tendency to do it. this. I wanted to talk about it as well, though. Um, so the other thing I wanted to talk about with pleasure is, like, it can come in many forms. So, like, I... I feel like I've really thought about this after reading Pleasure Activism by Adrienne Marie Brown over the spring, winter, whenever it came out. Um, It just like really expands on this idea that pleasure can take many forms and especially when we're talking about sex, just like with tripping. So it still works. Um, (laughs) um, You know, pleasure is not just having simultaneous orgasms like with a person with a vulva and a person with a penis and like, yay, like that is the only kind of like sex that is pleasurable and fun like first of all like what even is sex what can pleasure look like and how can we experiment with that and lead with curiosity and not attach like an outcome to it like we have to have simultaneous orgasms or else like it's not good but like how can we explore like what pleasure looks like and maybe learn new information about ourselves and what we like and what we don't like Mm. I even think you can extrapolate that from the sexual context. Like you have a like, especially when we're talking about like, uh, like diet culture. Mm-hmm. I think there's an interesting analogy to be drawn there, where it's like, like we describe like foods that are really appealing as decadent, right? And everyone's like, that's a decadent cake, but decadent really means like will cause an empire to crumble. Like that's the word decadent. And so I feel like we're also we also have a right to experience pleasure in things that society has deemed bad for you generally. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. Eat like you know what I fucking ate today. I ate a fucking cheeseburger. I had a deep fried portobello mushroom stuffed with cheese, and I ate fucking cheese fries. And it, and I was like not feeling bad about it because I like think that is pleasurable. But so many people like I think about this one girl in college out eating a cheeseburger in the dining hall, mm-hmm. and she like looks over at me and comes over and whispers and she goes, "I am so jealous." I would never be comfortable doing that in public. Rebecca, they have some more right over, right over. No, there. she would never feel comfortable eating a cheeseburger mm. in public. Mm. Sorry, that went on a sad tangent. Oh man, can you imagine? But that's also, I think, part of what was explored in pleasure activism too. That kind of like blew my mind as well. Like the ways that 
again, we're seeing like things that are rooted kind of in sex education culture. And we need that to expand to other parts of culture as well, because people still are like, they have their personal feelings and baggage when it comes to sex, which like is totally fine, but that can prohibit a lot of those conversations from happening. So if it's easier for someone to talk about pleasure activism through like diet culture or through consent work, or even just like, I don't know what like video games they like playing or something, right? Like it doesn't matter the entryway or like the means to it as long as we're talking about the actual concept and people are able to understand it where they are. That's the most important thing. I'm thinking about how like pleasure has become a privilege, I guess, for people who are, I don't know, maybe struggling just to survive. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if that comes into play with, with marginalized folks and populations or people who've had trauma and things like that. Cause if you're just like trying, if you're just in like a survival mindset, um, I think it can be difficult to even think about pleasure. Yeah. Like Um, the way that, or maybe our culture says like, you have to do this before you can think about pleasure. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's the mistake. Yeah. Like the way that self care has been like co-opted and, popular culture right and like Mm -hmm. when Audre Lorde was originally writing about it like people like take away the fact that she was writing about it from not just like a black lesbian perspective but also somebody that has a chronic illness too so like because she was a cancer survivor so like the fact that the ways that she talks about self-care it is not fluffy at all because it's the action paired with the intent it's not just like rooted in capitalism (laughs) which is like so yeah which is like so gross like but I also thinking about my own understanding about these things I listen I love a bath I love a bubble bath I love a bath Mm -hmm. bomb I love I love candles but I don't do these things just because of the aesthetic of it or just to like buy something um first of all like I was going to say with what money, but you know, (laughs) um, like I don't do it just because like the aesthetic of it or because like it looks cute. I do it because that is the kind of care that I need in that moment. Like sometimes that care looks like I need to be soft and cared for like lightly. And then other times self-care for me looks like, you know what, I'm going to like do my budget for the month and like plan out like when I'm going to go grocery shopping and like making sure that all my bills are getting paid and I'm going to check like my bank account every day. Right. Like self-care I think is both the things that the care that we need in a crisis when we are not at our base level normal, whatever that looks like. Um, And then it's also like the things that we do to maintain what that looks like on a day-to-day basis. I love what you said that it's like action with intention behind it for, for my clients, I call it self parenting Mm, instead of self care. So like you're saying, sometimes you have to do things that maybe you don't really feel like doing or like aren't pleasure filled, but they will have, you know, you're working towards a goal, Mm -hmm. like basically like do your homework before you play outside or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And if you're having trouble doing that, like get a daddy. I just get a daddy and I'm like, tell me what to do. I was like talking to my partner about this too because they were like asking me about my thoughts on self-care and I was like it's like flossing like I don't ever I've never in my life said you know what I'm really in the mood to do floss all my teeth but it helps me feel like (laughs) you have such good teeth I should floss more thank you um it just it helps me feel like clearly she's been self-parenting this is part of like my self-care to like maintain because I don't want like I've had like dental issues so like I want to prevent that from happening so like I'm gonna 
you know, this is something that I'm going to do to like help just take care of my base level normal. And yeah. And what I love about that is that it's not rooted in like, you have to buy something and like participate in capitalism, but it's just like what works for you, which I'm totally about. I don't ever want to subscribe this idea that like there is a one size fits all solution for all of our problems. Cause we're all people. And like, especially doing this work in sex ed, like we're working with people. We can't remove the individualistic aspect from it. I mean, in addition to teaching folks about that really important topic, something that I know that you're working on with folks uh, that can hire you. So I don't want you to give it all away because <laughs> I want people to pay money to hire you. Mm-hmm. Um, and the topic is like digisexuality. Mm-hmm. What is that? Yeah. And like, how are you helping people do that? Before you tell, I thought it was about things with your fingers. Just, just throwing that out there. I love yeah, that. Yeah, like your digits. I thought it was like a focus on hand sex. But oh my gosh. <laughs> Which I also love. I'm, I, I may carry that with me now. <laughs> Thank you. But tell us what it really is. Yeah, so digisexuality is just like digital sexuality. I think folks are a little bit more familiar with like sex tech and how that's been expanding. And it's just like, technology um, in the sexuality field. So it can look like an app that's connected to a vibrator. It can also look like, I don't know, like VR stuff. It get, like it, it takes so many different forms. Um, and I have a few folks as well that like are in my life that I learned so much from that specialize in digisexuality and in sex tech particularly. Um, Allison Falk, um, she runs the women in tech in Pittsburgh and she focuses specifically on sex tech and like, oh my gosh, she's like one of the most brilliant people I know. (laughs) And it's just like in tech, in sex tech and is just really passionate about bridging the gaps between like technology and technology-based laws and also how it impacts sexuality and just impacts civilians like across industries. And then my friend SX Noir um, is also someone that focuses on digisexuality and sex tech and she's just like, so brilliant and is doing really incredible innovative work. Um, but what I specialize in, <laughs> so I found, yeah, I, I'm a roundabout talker. No, uh, you're great. You're not like, sorry. You're like, I am coming back to the point. No, you're like a writer. You're like exposition. My point. We're going to come on a journey with me. So what I um, specialize in is, again, like being in this field, I just found that so many folks were just like struggling to make ends be. And just like everyone is burnt out. Everyone is just like struggling to figure out what is my rate? How do I work smarter and not harder is not even part of the conversation because people are just trying to survive. So I wrote my first ebook um, earlier this year called Becoming a Sexuality Professional, The Beginner's Guide to Finding Their Way Within Sex Ed. And it's just like a digital guidebook I created for folks that had the question of like, how do I get started in this field? Do I need to get certified? What, like, how do I figure out like, the entryway for me. And it is like one of the only resources that I've found that doesn't cost like hundreds of dollars, like is not part of like academia. You can just like buy it off my website, like, and get it downloaded directly to you. And it has action steps that are there for you to get started in the field today. And that was really important for me as well. And it just got so well received that like, I'm working on my next ebook right now and I'm just really excited because this allows me to have a much healthier relationship when it comes to money and like the fact that 
I need money to survive a capitalist system is not something that I need to be shameful for. And also like, I don't need to be ashamed of saying like, I need money to survive this system and also to show up as my best self to help people. Like the two don't need to like be separate from each other. So I'm really excited to be able to do like one-on-one work and like group coaching work with other sexuality professionals to like share the things that I've learned. Cause I'm like, yo, if I can do this, like you can do this too. (laughs) So I'm just like really excited to help other sexuality professionals, um, at all levels, just help them bring their ideas to life and like create digital products so that they're able to be sustained in this field and show up in the ways that work for them. And also, yeah, have money to help them survive a capitalist system. Well, I think that people should find you and hire you. Yes. <laughs> and we are super grateful for you being willing to give us your free, like physical and emotional labor to show up for the show today. She um, slept from Brooklyn. We so- <laughs> yeah. But how can, how can people find this? How can people hire you? Um, how can people get in touch? Yeah, yeah. So you can find me online. Um, I am Black Girl Manifest, BLK Girl Manifest at um, Instagram and Twitter. You can also find the show there as well, just Sex Ed and Colors, the handle, uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. So subscribe, listen, rate, review, all that fun stuff. Um, and if you're interested in purchasing my ebook or finding information on how you can hire me and work with me, you can visit my website, CameronGlover.com. Thank you so fucking much for joining us. Thank you. This was so fun. Oh, good. I'm (laughs) glad you liked it. Um, As always, if you want to stay up to date on everything that we're working on, you can find us on Instagram at Sluts and Scholars, on Twitter at Sluts Scholars. Please email us at slutsandscholars at gmail.com. And if you like what we're doing, like Cameron said, it's nice to be able to support yourself as a sexuality professional so you can feel free, not feel free, please support us on patreon.com slash sluts and scholars. Oh, rate and review. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a free way to show, that is a free way to show support as well. And it's super valuable for podcasters and folks that are doing this work. It ups us in the algorithm. Yeah. Yes.